Hey, welcome everybody. Very glad to have you guys for the first week, four weeks, of newcomers orientation. And if you miss one of the weeks, we record them. That's what that is. So you can listen to the recording. You have the notebook there. I hope you'll be able to make all of them, but things come up. So if that's the case, it's fine. We really like to have this uh, small format so that as I go through the material here, you can ask any questions as we go through. So please stop me, and I'll be happy to answer your questions as best I can. But this is, as the name suggests, for newcomers, so for people who are new to our church, in order to give you information about our church, to help you make a decision about where the Lord would have you grow and serve. So after we're finished with this four weeks, we don't follow up with you, we don't hassle you, any of that. You have to make a prayerful decision about whether this is the place. Now, if you continue to hang around here for like a year after that, and you don't make a decision, then I'll hassle you. And I'll say, you know, you, what are you going to do? <laughs> so really, because, because aligning with a church is important. So if it's going to be here, great. But if it's not going to be here, that's okay too. You just need to then make a decision. So you need sufficient time for that, but a year should probably be, should probably be enough, okay? So we'll go through this material together to try to help you with that, okay? Page one is our introduction, and the introduction talks about our beginning, and I will give you that beginning of uh, our church and how I came to be acquainted with the church. You may have heard, if you were in the first hour, during the announcements that at the end of September, we are having our annual, our anniversary dinner. We call it a celebration dinner, but this one next month is our 20 year. So the church has existed for 20 years as of September 9, we started September 9, 2001. Two days later was September 11, 2001. You may remember that. And my sermon and uh, all of that changed for the following week in light of what had, what had happened. But that's when we started, September 9 of, of 2001. Next month then will be 20 years for us. And we started this way. that I was on staff at a church in Flat Rock, Huron Baptist Church. My wife and I attended there for 16 years. The last nine of those, I was on staff. And the church had always preached and talked about as their vision for the future, planting other churches, starting other churches. And this ended up being the first of the churches that they, that they planted. They kicked me out, in effect, to, to start this church. And our family, along with three others. So when we started the church, we had a total of 11 people. We had seven adults and we had uh, four children when we started the church. I live right, still live right behind Huron Baptist Church in Flat Rock. So my house was bought there on purpose because back when I started, I did youth work there and we were able to have the teens over our house and all of that it was very convenient. Uh, but that church started us. You'll read that in these introductory pages on your own. I would recommend if you're if you're interested in that history. So we came with uh, those families, and then over the last 20 years, uh, the Lord has allowed us to acquire this building and for our church our church to grow. I'll briefly describe that, and then I'll get into my own testimony as to how I came to the Lord and got into ministry, all of that. But 20 years ago, we start and we just have a handful of people. We started meeting in September of 01 at Summit, what was then called Summit. I think it's called something else now. They changed the name of it. But at Sibley and Middlebell. Uh, on Sibley, there is an elementary school. 
But then around the corner on Middle Belt is their middle school and high school. And we met uh, starting September of 01 in the high school building. They had just built a cafeteria. And the cafeteria was not terribly large, but that was great. We weren't either. And so the size was, was good for us. And we were there for several years. The church gradually grew so that we outgrew that cafeteria. We thought that we would then start meeting in their gymnasium. We asked if we could do that. They said no. Kindly, but they said no. They don't want the chairs on the floor and stuff like that. So we moved about a mile and a half away to Inkster Road, Brownstown Middle School. And we spent a couple of years at Brownstown Middle School. Brownstown Middle School started doing renovations on their building. Told us we would have to move out for the summer while they did these renovations. We had to move to Patrick Henry Middle School. And that was further, a lot further east. That's kind of in the Woodhaven area. That's where we moved to. We thought it was just going to be the summer till the renovations were done. But then when those renovations were finished, they said, you know, in the summers, we're actually going to start closing all of the district schools. The only one that's going to be open in the summer is going to be the high school for kids that need to take summer school. So it was a cost-saving measure, which means if you want to meet year-round, which of course we did, you don't want to be at Patrick Henry and you don't want to be at Brownstown Middle, you need to move to Woodhaven, Woodhaven High School. So Summit... Brownstown Middle, Patrick Henry Middle, Woodhaven High School. While we were meeting at Woodhaven High School, we were looking for a building or the possibility of building on some property that we owned on Inkster Road. We had bought 10 acres. We thought we would build on that property. With the collapse of the economy at the end of 08 and then the few years after that, it was clear that it was more economical for us to buy an existing building, because there were lots of them that were empty, than to try to build. So we started looking at empty buildings, and one of the members of our church was uh, working for the Trenton Schools. Uh, that family has now moved out west, but in God's providence, they were with us at that time. And she came to me, and she said, uh, hey, there's a school that closed a couple years ago, this one, and they put $250,000 in their budget to tear it down. Now, not because it was a bad building, but because uh, they didn't want... <laughs> They didn't want it to go on the market and have a charter school buy it. But they would love to sell it to somebody on the QT. So I can get you guys a tour. She did. We toured the building, and uh, they wanted $380,000 for the building and the property. And we said, you know, if you guys ever come down to $250, we'll take it. And a couple months later, they came down to $250. So we bought this building in 2012 for $250,000. This is 47,000 square feet, and it has 15 acres uh, attached to it. So that, we, we considered that a pretty good deal. So in God's providence, he's just moved us that way, and this is what we think will be our permanent home going, going forward. So we've been here since 2013. Now, how did I get involved in all of this? Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. I grew up in a Pentecostal uh, pastor's home. If you're familiar with Pentecostalism, uh, there are gradations of Pentecostals. You, know, you will have some Pentecostal churches that believe in the manifestation of miraculous gifts of the Spirit, miraculous healings, prophecies, speaking in tongues. You guys, some of you know what I'm talking about? All right. They may believe in that, but if you go to the church on any given Sunday, you may go for many Sundays, you, won't, you wouldn't necessarily see it. You've got others that are on the other end 
that are very demonstrative, very expressive, and things like that are happening all the time. I tell you that to tell you I was on the extreme end. Things were happening like that all the time. Uh, speaking in tongues, running the aisles, uh, people being slain in the spirit, meaning just kind of laying in the aisles. I mean, that's what I, that's what I grew up with. Uh, my father, who was the pastor of the church, passed away when I was 11. His brother, my uncle, became a pastor. So we continued to go there, still in our family. But in God's providence, my mother, now widowed, when I became high school age, did not want me to go to the public high school in my town, which is, I grew up in Ecorse, so I've been in the Don River area my whole life. She didn't want me to go to Ecorse High School. She didn't know what the alternative was, because back in the 70s, about the only private schools you had were Catholic schools. But somehow she stumbled across a Baptist school in Allen Park and sent me to intercity uh, Baptist High School. And as a result of that, God used that in my life to ultimately for me to come out of being a Pentecostal. Uh, the big issue for me with regard to that initially was not the gifts, but it was eternal security. You all know what I mean by that? That my Pentecostal church that I grew up in said you could lose your salvation. You could be a Christian, but then sometime later not be a, a Christian. And I studied, right after I graduated, I really studied on my own and determined that that was not the case, that someone is genuinely a Christian, they are that eternally, thus eternal security, which meant I then needed to leave my Pentecostal church, and I started attending Baptist churches uh, after that. Now, through the intercity connection, a number of things happened. One, God used that for me to come to Christ. I was saved, as I said in the sermon this morning, at age 19, so just after I graduated. But God used the influence of some of my teachers and advisors and my friends for me to understand salvation and come to the Lord. So that's most important. I also met my future wife there. Now, my wife is not in this room. She normally is when I go through this. And that's because, as I speak here, her brother is speaking in the auditorium. And her brother just came into town. His plane came in at like 8 this morning. She picked him up at the airport. I asked him to speak during this hour and there because he and his wife are ministering in Germany and they're heading back next month, but they're spending a few weeks with us. So she wants to hear her brother rather than hear me. And so that's the, that's the okay? But Kim will be in here the next uh, three weeks for this. But I met Kim at uh, Intercity. She's one year uh, behind me. And God brought us together after high school, and, uh, and we got married. And it's been 36 years, and we have been partners in ministry. And I want you to know that because I think that's very important for people to know as they consider a church that the leadership of the church has solid marriages, and we believe in that very deeply and are committed to that. And so I thank God for my wife as a partner in ministry, uh, and it's been, a, it's been a great joy to be partnered with her. So, I, uh, we get married. We got married. I was 22. She was 22. I was going to college. Um, I was taking computer science. I got a degree in computer science at Wayne State. But all the while, I was serving in my church. I was teaching. And God was working in my heart to pursue pastoral ministry. And that's the third thing that InterCity then did with me. One, I got saved through the ministry. I met my wife. And then I became acquainted with Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary through that because they run that as well. And I determined that after I finished college, I would then go to seminary, and that's what I did. I graduated from Detroit Seminary in 95, 
And then Huron Baptist in Flat Rock ordained me to the ministry in 96. And then five years later, as I say, kicked us out to start this church. Okay? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's how it's gone. You can read about some of that on uh, page one. If you turn to page two, you see that our church has undergone a name change. When we started our church, our name was Community Baptist Church. Now, we are still Baptists, so it's good for folks to take this to understand that. We say that on our website under the About Us section. We talk about what our beliefs are, and we say that we are Baptists. So why did we then change the name in 2013 from Community Baptist to Community Bible? Nothing, nothing changed about our beliefs. We only changed the name. Why did we do that? Just to be blunt about it, here's why. We're Baptist, but we're not the crazy Baptist. You all know what I mean? There are crazy Baptists. Lots of Baptists. All Baptist churches, all, whether you're in the Southern Baptist Convention, American Baptist uh, Convention, whatever, all Baptist churches are independent. So unlike in a hierarchical denomination like Roman Catholicism or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist, those you have a hierarchy and there are some dictates that come from the hierarchy as to what is to be done at the local level. There is no such thing in Baptist churches. So what that means is if you've been to one Baptist church, you haven't been to them all <laughs> because they're all so different. Which means your name gets associated with some really squirrely stuff. Like, there are lots of Baptist churches who believe the King James Version of the Bible is the only God-inspired version of the Bible. And we don't believe that. And we don't believe that for doctrinal reasons. Uh, and those who believe it are very strident about it. And so we wanted to distance ourselves from that. A number of Baptist churches are very, for lack of a better term, legalistic meaning they have all kinds of extra-biblical rules that people have to abide by. Many Baptist churches uh, out there, a woman is not allowed to wear slacks. Not just not wear slacks to church, you can't wear slacks anyway. Uh, that's some of the legalistic kinds of rules again. So many people have either grown up in those kinds of things or they've visited that kind of thing. And if they have a hierarchical denominational background where there is some continuity on the local level, then they have the idea that if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Because with these others, that's kind of the deal. But it's not with Baptists. So we were faced with that, that dilemma. You know, I was just finding people. I'll just give you an example. You all remember several years ago here in Dearborn, there was a guy who was coming to Dearborn going outside of a mosque in Dearborn and he was burning Korans. Do you remember that? That was in the news and he was making a big splash. And I had more than one person, just people that I was talking to out and about, say to me, hey, what do you think about that Baptist guy who's burning the Korans? But here's the thing. That guy wasn't Baptist. And do you see what's happening? Many people have come to the point where they think if you're a religious person and you're crazy, you must be Baptist. And we had that kind of thing happening, so we talked to our leadership and we said, you know, what, what can we do with that? When we moved into this building in 2013, it was an opportune time for us to discuss that. That's when we made the name change. Doctrine has not changed at all, but it's just to let people know that we are not that. Okay? If you have any questions about any of that, you can ask them now or, uh, or later if they occur to you. Okay? All right, look at page three. 
our vision and our mission. Now, sometimes people use these uh, interchangeably, vision and mission, but we make a distinction. Uh, for us, when we talk about our vision, it's what we are to be. And then your mission is what you are to do because of who you are. So your vision is what you are to be, and then your mission is what you do because of, of who you are. What do we want to be? We say, right, uh, we say right there in the box at the top of page three, we want to be a healthy community of faith. Now that then requires answering the question, what does a healthy community of faith look like? And that means going to scripture and seeing what are the components of a healthy of a healthy church. You see those seven bullet points there. Now, there are books like there's an organization called Nine Marks. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's actually a very good organization. Uh, NineMarks.org. If you go to the number nine marks, M-A-R-K-S.org, you'll find all kinds of very helpful material there. Uh, and Nine Marks actually gets its name from this. The first book that group ever put out was called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And they have nine, then signs of a healthy church. Here are seven. But it turns out our seven are pretty much the same as their nine, because we derived them from the same book, namely the Bible. And so we've just assumed a, couple, assumed a couple of them under other points. So, you know, some people might have six, they might have nine, but what does the Bible teach are the common features of a healthy church. Now, we will be looking at these in detail next week. So we'll go through each one of these seven in next week's lesson that we desire to be a healthy church. So I won't, I'm just going to leave that for now. Then our mission, if we are that kind of healthy church, this is what we believe God has called us to carry out in the box, that we exist to help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. Those three things. So everything we do around here is... Uh, is done because it helps us achieve one or more of those three objectives. Learn, love, live. And you will find that around. You'll find that on banners around here and stuff like that because we want people to know that that's what our purpose is. The ministries then of the church are not just good things that we want to do. If you think about all the good things that a church can do, they're just all kinds of and what happens over time with a lot of churches is, and I'm so glad we decided to do this right at the beginning, because 20 years into it, what you would have is this amalgam of just all kinds of appendages of ministries going on. Now, we have lots of ministries, thank the Lord, but those ministries are designed for a purpose. And I've said this over the years that, you know, church ministries are like government programs. You can start them, but you never get rid of them. So once you start it, it better be good. It better be something that really fits what it is you're trying to do because otherwise it just becomes this bloated kind of thing. And lots of churches have that. We're still sort of doing the thing, but we sort of forgot why we're doing the thing. What does it fit into all of that? So uh, we try to make sure that all that we do fits into these uh, categories. Now, on page 17, you don't need to turn there, but you can if you want. Page 17, we're going to see uh, in a couple of weeks that we have that we have uh, a chart, one page on page 17. And it is a chart that shows you these three things and how it plays out in our ministry. Am I right? Is it page 17? Okay. And I'll explain that chart and the ministries and how that does the learn, love, and live. But for now, just know that that's what we are seeking to accomplish. 
helping people learn about God, love Him and others, live according to His purpose. Now, what do we believe? That's page four. Well, I've already said that this is a Baptist church. And I don't believe uh, that Baptists are the only people going to heaven. I don't believe you have to be Baptist to go to heaven. Um, I sometimes joke, you know, I don't think you have to be Baptist to go to heaven, but why take a chance? I'm kidding. <laughs> you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven. You can be, and, and as a matter of fact, I look forward to seeing my father. who died when I was 11. Pentecostal, so if my dad were still alive, we would obviously have some disagreements, but we would be brothers in the Lord. And then my uncle, who took over for him. Anybody who belongs to Jesus Christ is part of the body, capital B, of Christ. And in the future, we believe that God is going to receive his body in something called the rapture. Uh, and everybody who belongs to Jesus will go. And there'll be Baptists, and there'll be Pentecostals, and there'll be lots of people, okay? Uh, and it'll be a great reunion. So you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven. You know, this is simply a statement of what we believe to be a, an accurate representation of what the Bible teaches, as best we can discern. And on page four is this widely used for many years acrostic. You see on the left there, it spells out the word Baptists. And you've got these distinctives of biblical authority, the autonomy of the church, priesthood of the believer, two offices, individual soul liberty, saved church membership, two ordinances, and then separation uh, from the world and separation of church and state. Now that's not our full doctrinal statement by any means. In fact, in Appendix A, we have a long doctrinal statement. Uh, I'm not going to go over the doctrinal statement, other than to make you aware that it's there and to say this. There's nothing weird in there. You won't find anything, any snake handling buried in there or, or anything like that. But I do encourage you to at least peruse it, if not read it in full. And then if you have any questions about it, I'm happy to, to answer those for you. When we get to the end of our time in four weeks, uh, in the very last lesson, at the very end, I say, all right, you've heard all this stuff, now what do you do? And I tell you what happens for someone to become a member of our church. And one of the things that one has to be willing to do to become a member of our church is to be, and this is the word we use, supportive of our doctrinal statement. And we use that term carefully, supportive, meaning not that you necessarily understand everything in it, or if you do understand everything in it, there might be a few things you disagree with in it. I just mentioned the rapture, for example. People have different views on that and when the rapture is going to happen. We have a particular thing in our doctrine statement. You don't have to agree with us on that, but you have to be willing to support it, meaning you won't undermine it. You won't teach against it. You won't try to draw people away from it. That's what we mean, okay? So our full doctrinal statement is in the back of your notebook in Appendix A, and these distinctives there on page 4, we make no claim that Baptists are the only ones who believe any of these. Take the first one, biblical authority. Clearly, we're not the only Christian group that believes in the authority of the Bible, uh, or others of these. However, it is true that Baptists are the only ones who believe all of these, taken together. And that's why they're distinctive. You put all of those together, and you have a decent understanding of what a Baptist is. All right, I'm going to move on to lesson one. We're going to complete that today, and then we'll have our next three lessons together. Any questions about anything that I've covered so far? Anybody? All right, look at page five. Lesson one, we seek to be an intentional church. Intentional church. Now, Here's why this intentionality thing is so important to me personally. 
And it's some of it, I admit, is a bit of a personality quirk. You know, it's all different. And uh, my mind, in fact, there are old books written on people who are called uh, people who are called uh, sequential thinkers. You know, and then people who are random thinkers. And that's not a that's not a slam when we say random. It's just the way we we just think different. We organize our thoughts different. But I'm a sequential thinker. So for me, things have to go in order. And to, so that's my personality. But to make matters worse, I mentioned that computer science degree. So I worked for 20 years doing computer programming. And so that just further trains you in, look, man, one thing's had to follow after another. And if it doesn't, then things just blow up. So it, part of this is personal, I admit. I like for things to be ordered. I like for us to know why we're doing what we're doing. That's what we mean by intention. But as it turns out, we believe the Bible uh, teaches that we need to be intentional in what we're doing as well. So our mindset is intentional. I say at the top of page five, most of us have an idea of what we think a church should be. For a few, that has come by conscious adoption of a model, a paradigm for ministry. But for most, our ideas have been unconsciously absorbed from our experience. So if you just think about what we said there, if you've got church experience yourself, whatever that is, then you carry that with you. We all do. And that then can shape what you think a church is supposed to be. That may or may not be correct, uh, but it needs to be compared to Scripture for all of us, whatever that experience is. And we all do carry that, that with us. But in either case, as I say, middle of that paragraph, our view may or may not comport with what Scripture tells us about the life of the church. So it's necessary to go back to the foundation, the Word of God, and ensure that the kind of church we seek to build is one that will, will please God. Now, when you plant a church, which is what happened here 20 years ago, see, the great thing is you sort of have a blank slate to deal with. I came from my church background. The small group of people that we had had their church background. So we all brought that. But we all spent the summer of 2001, June, July, and August, every Sunday night, meeting in the home of one of our now pastors. Pastor Rich did our scripture reading today. We met in their home for those three months in the run-up to our launch. And the, for those three months, much of what we did was what we called a baggage check. We were trying to identify what baggage are we bringing with us and... I don't mean that to be negative. Some of it can be negative, but it just means what experiences are we bringing with us? And now, let's compare that to what the scriptures say. So here's an example. In growing up, my structure for church, and just about every church I knew of, had this as its structure. Namely, you had Sunday school on Sunday morning, often at like 10 o'clock, and then at 11 o'clock you had the worship service. And then on Sunday evening, 6 or 7 o'clock, you had the Sunday evening service. And then on Wednesday, you had the Wednesday service. And the Wednesday service was often called the prayer, the prayer meeting. And while the adults were having a prayer meeting, the kids were doing the uh, Awana, if you know what that, a kids program, something like that. Now, it's all good. I mean, it served the church well for a lot of years. But there's nothing in the Bible about any of that structure that the only thing actually in the Bible about any of that is meeting for worship with God's people on the Lord's day. The rest of it is stuff that we have for good reasons added, good reasons. Because the Bible tells us to do things that we need times to do them. 
and ways to do them. But we need to be aware that many of these things are things that we have, hopefully in wisdom, come up with for all of our churches. So we, 20 years ago, had the opportunity to just step back and evaluate that and say, what are some things that the Bible tells us to do that maybe we can do better if we switch things around a little bit? We weren't trying to be different, to be cool. If you come here for any length of time, you will understand this church is the anti-cool church, okay? I, I'm not into being cool. I don't want to be cool. I don't want to be relevant in the eyes of the world, any of that. That's all overdone in our churches. Churches want to be hip. I'm not your guy if you're looking for somebody hip. That should probably be pretty obvious by now. So we're not trying to be cool. We just wanted to be intentional. And so we did. Our schedule is a little bit different. Just not a bunch, but a little bit. You know, we're doing our Sunday school hour right now. So instead of Sunday school worship, it's worship Sunday school. There's actually a reason for that. I'm going to tell you what it is in a couple weeks. <laughs> okay, But there's an intentional reason for that. Sunday night, we don't have an all-church gathering. Sunday night service. Now, part of that was we were renting facilities for the first 12 years of our existence. You didn't have available a building anyway. But during those 12 years, what we did was meet in homes. And we had home groups on Sunday nights. Once we got this building, we could then have it on Sunday nights. Everybody come together again on Sunday nights. But those home groups are actually accomplishing something for us that we can't accomplish in other meetings. And so that's what we do on Sunday nights, and I'll explain that again in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, our Wednesday night program is like a Bible Institute format. You heard the uh, announcements that starting on September 19th, we will have three classes, and folks can choose which of those classes they want to take. And yes, we have a kids program and the nursery and toddler and all that while we're doing that. So that's the way we decided to structure it. There's nothing scriptural about that either. You can do it different ways. But the point is that it's intentional. Now, second paragraph. One major obstacle to effectiveness for many of our churches is insufficient structures for ministry. And one keeps us from changing those inefficient structures. Often it's tradition. It's been correctly observed that the seven last words of a dying church are, we've always done it that way. When people get tied to particular forms of ministry rather than the functions that those are designed to carry out, then the church's growth is going to be stunted. Now, let me just underscore again that not trying to be hip, not trying to be cool, relevant, all of that, all those buzzwords, that uh, I, I very much appreciate tradition in the sense of knowing church history and knowing Christian history, but knowing Baptist history as well and knowing whose shoulders it is we stand on. You know, we, we're not making any of this up. You know, it didn't start with me and it's not going to die with me or any of us. The church is 2,000 years old and there's a great heritage you know, of that. So tradition in the proper sense can be good. Someone has said it this way. The problem is really not tradition, it's traditionalism. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. <laughs> That's just people going through the motions because we've always done it that way. Okay, So... We need to understand that the Bible teaches the difference between function and form. As you survey the New Testament, you find that it's filled with directives regarding functions we're to carry out. That is what we're to do, but it's short on the specific ways we're to do it, the forms that carry them out. 
Here's an example. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10.25 to not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. So it's telling us what to do, meet regularly and encourage. But it doesn't tell you how you're to, to do that. We're not told when to meet, how often to meet, where to meet, what the order of service is supposed to be, and so on. We're given illustrations, but it's impossible to derive universal ways of doing this to carry out those functions. In fact, notice this. Functions in the Bible are most often given without any way of doing it specified. So functions are like evangelize, disciple, edify, worship. Those are functions. But most often you're not given in the Bible the specific ways you do that. Have you ever thought about that? It's true. It's absolutely true. I had a theory about why God did that. You know, this is this is a this is a mission. Christ's mission is a worldwide mission, and it goes then to cultures all over the world. So, if God in Scripture locks you into particular ways of doing things, it's going to be very hard to have a worldwide worldwide mission, right? In different in different cultures, but you get the functions, but not the form. And then, second bullet there, the forms that are given are often partial or incomplete. Here you've got Acts 5.42, and it says the apostles taught. That's a function. And that they did it from house to house. That's a way that they did it. But we're not told if it was every house or just some, whether it was believers and unbelievers that they taught, whether they were inside or outside the house, whether the neighbors were invited. You don't get any, you don't get any of that. And then, third, the forms for the same function sometimes vary in the, in, in the, the same context. That same passage, Acts 5.42, says that in addition from teaching the house to house, they did so in the temple courts. So you can't absolutize the way you do stuff because they're often not described, they're often incomplete, and they are changing. Page 6. Yet changing the forms of ministry is often difficult. And so unless people adopt this sort of mindset, then uh, it will be hard for a church to have efficient structures for ministry. Thankfully at our church, we teach this at the beginning so people know the deal when they start. And we had that mindset 20 years ago, and so it's, it's stayed with us. Now, if you look in the middle of page 6, you see a long quotation from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where the very first church ever started. Prior to Acts chapter 2, there was no church, had never been a church. You had the nation of Israel. You had God working through his chosen people. But now, in Acts chapter 2, Christ has come. He has done his work. He has raised. And the church has begun now in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, there is exactly one church that exists in the entire world. And it's the church in Jerusalem. And that church in Jerusalem is described in that passage in the middle of page 6. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then if you skip down to the very last line, it says that they, or excuse me, the second to the last line, they praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, that first church is being commended at the very beginning of the church for these things and these things if you call out what those verses are saying, I think you'll get what we have in the bullets there that if a church is going to be uh, a healthy church, then it needs to offer to its people these three experiences 
structure itself to offer these three experiences. Here they are. Learning experiences with the Word of God, relational experiences with other believers, and then witnessing experiences with the world. Those three things. Remember I said that our three objectives are learn, love, and live? See, that's on purpose. Because of those three things. Learn, love others, live for His purpose. And that we're getting that from here, and then you see that elsewhere in the New Testament as well. So that's why we've structured the church that way, intentionally, to carry out those three things. Now, uh, if you, again, have had church experience, then you probably, as you look at those three and you say, you know, if the churches I've been in, which of those have they had? Learning, relational, witnessing experiences with the world. And your experience will probably be similar to mine. That you've been in churches that have that really major on one of those, sometimes two of those, but n- not often enough all three of those. And to the extent that we don't structure and carry out our ministry with all three of those, to that extent we are less healthy than we should be. Because I'm affiliated with a seminary, and I, most of the pastor friends I have are seminary graduates. One of the hazards, occupational hazards of being a pastor who's a seminary graduate is that you want people to know you got your money's worth. And so it's, it's constantly one thing. It's constantly learning. Now that may sound weird, like I'm criticizing learning the Bible. Hang around here, you'll know we're big on learning the Bible. So I'm certainly not. But, if that's all you do and you don't structure the ministry so that what is learned is now carried out in relationships and in ministry, now what you have is people who continue to know more and more and sort of become Bible trivia buffs. They know a lot of Bible, but the objective is to do something with that Bible. It's supposed to issue forth in love for other people and then serving in God's in God's mission. So learning needs to issue forth in, in, in loving and living. In fact, when we get to page 17 and we see the chart, you'll see that we've even the graphic is set up that way. You learn, and then it's like an arrow that goes toward loving and living, right? So you don't want one of those, you don't want two of those, you want to structure it so that you're doing all three of those. So our mindset is intentional. And then we've tried to structure accordingly. A healthy church is going to be structured to facilitate learning, loving, and living. And a failure to balance those is the product of, at least to that extent, an unhealthy church. You've seen our mission statement, bottom of page 6, achieving the object, the objectives of learning, loving, and living requires we structure accordingly. So that means we got to develop forms that help us carry out the functions that God gives us. Now, it does start, page 7, with helping people learn about God. And not just helping Christians learn about God, but starting with helping non-Christians learn about God, which is one of the distinctives that you'll see about our church, that we have a, a regular time in our structure to try to talk to unbelievers about God. And that time that we do that is the second hour. On September the 19th, so I said that Wednesday was starting September 19th. Our Wednesday program starts September 22nd. Sunday, September 19th, 
we start a series in the second hour in the auditorium. It's called um, Identity Crisis. And we send mailers out to all of Trenton and we invite people to come to that. Now, we don't send mailers and invite people to come to our worship service, although anybody's welcome to our worship service. And you know why? Because our worship service is not designed for unbelievers. On purpose. Because, as I'll say in a couple weeks, unbelievers can't worship by definition. So we don't design the worship service. However, we have the second hour where we say, come to this class, and a religious guy is going to stand up in front of the class, that would be me, and going to teach you on this topic. Identity crisis, and on the mailer, tells them that we're going to look at the Bible to see what God says about who we are. Who we are is made in his image. Who we are as then fallen people, and how that plays out on things like gender dysphoria and identity, that kind of stuff, okay? Well, these are things people are interested in, but the Bible has answers to that, right? So that's primarily what we do during this second hour. We're going to do that again starting September the, uh, the 19th. So that's what we mean, top of page 7, by a forum for addressing the unchurched. I'll let you read that paragraph on your own. But there's a biblical pattern to this. You know, again, we're not, I'm not making this up. <laughs> you don't want to go to a church where the pastor is, like, real creative, okay? Like, you know, in theology and in Christian ministry, creativity is, is overdone. Because God, you know, he did write a book to at least give us the principles that we're to carry out. And you see this pattern of having a time to address unbelievers in Scripture. The, the Apostle Paul, when he would go into a town, first thing he would do is determine where are the unbelievers for me to give the gospel. He'd go to the synagogue. He sometimes would go to the marketplace. In Ephesus, Acts chapter 19 tells us he set up, he set up a lecture hall. He, he rented a lecture hall for two years. And he invited people to come and he gave them the gospel. And he would reason with people and he would dispute with them and all that. So what this thing that we do, second hour, is, is kind of our version of the lecture hall in Ephesus. And it's an opportunity for us to invite unbelievers. And Now, you say, well, if I'm a believer, do I get to stay? Is there a sign when people come in that say, sheep go this way, goats go that way? <laughs> no, we're all in there together. And I would encourage you to be in there too. Even though we're trying to reach unbelievers through this, our believers, our, our church members, benefit from, from what's presented as well. And if nothing else, even if you don't feel you're benefiting from it, I would encourage you to do it because it's helpful for you to be able to meet those people, for those people to see other people there, that kind of thing. Okay. So there's the biblical pattern. Bottom of page 7, there's a historical precedent. This was done in history. Uh, I'll let you read that on your own. Page 8, we're almost done. So the result of all of that then is that we have this second hour for the adults in our auditorium, and we call second hour, instead of our adult Sunday school, we call it Discovering God. Um, and we say they're having a regular time to communicate with unbelievers is a good idea. The worship service is the wrong time to do it because worship is for believers. But given that in our culture, most are inclined to consider spiritual matters on Sunday morning, we thought it wise to offer a service on Sunday morning, separate from worship at which we could address unbelievers. So we offer it at 11 o'clock. 
um, contemporaneous with Sunday school. All right, I told you I'd tell you in two weeks why it's 11 o'clock. I'll tell you now. Fine. Uh, because when you talk to an unbelieving friend, a neighbor, uh, family member, coworker, and you say, hey, why don't you come to church with me you know, on Sunday? How many times have you heard this? When I worked for 20 years in the computer field, I can't tell you how many times I heard, Sunday is my only day to what? Sleep in. So we said, all right, sleep in. We'll start at 11. Okay. <laughs> we'll get up early. We'll have worship. And that, I mean, that's really the reason. We have it later. So that somebody who's not used to getting up, you guys are like, man, 9.30 for the worship service. Right. We're making that sacrifice so they can come They can come later at, at 11 o'clock. The setting is a classroom atmosphere. So when the person comes in, they're just coming, they sit down. I'm on the floor with a lectern, and it's, they get a notebook, some notes, and it's just a classroom kind of atmosphere. So it's not a, it's not a worship service. And then we try to present it in a way That's guest-sensitive. Now, guest-sensitive is different than guest-driven. You guys ever heard of seeker-sensitive? Or Seeker-sensitive really ends up being seeker-driven, meaning the church ends up doing whatever the, whatever the unbelievers want and to make it palatable. to the, That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is simply, in common Christian grace, communicate in a way that we understand that this person doesn't know anything about this. So that's part of the reason why in the worship service that we hand out Bibles and we say those are marked for you at Romans chapter 1. Because some of those people that are new in the faith, we've got people new in the faith, they don't know how, still haven't taken our classes on how to fumble around in the Bible yet. So when I say turn to Romans, they don't know how to get there. So we just give them a Bible and we say it's marked for you. Keep it. Bring it back. But that's all driven then off of this because it's a, just a guest sensitive trying to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's hearing this for the first time. So care is taken to communicate in language the unchurch can understand. All I mean by that is I don't use big theological terms and not explain them. I may use theological terms, but I'll always explain what they are. Unchurched are invited to come informally. We don't take an offering. You know, that's one of the things people are afraid to go to church for because there's going to be a shakedown. They're going to, they want my money. We're not taking the offering. Or, you know, people say, you know, I hate, you know, I hate church music, you know, and so I don't, well, okay, we, the second hour we don't even have any music, so. Actually, we've got a great bunch of music people anyway, but if you don't like our music, we don't have it second hour anyhow, so we take that off the table. And then the topics are chosen to address the unchurched, things like um, um, identity crisis. And then finally, our schedule is intentional. We try to then see people come to the Lord through that Discovering God hour, but other ways. But on the assumption that people do come and respond to our invitation, then we actually schedule our calendar around that. So, for example, October the 9th, I'm pretty sure I got it right, October the 9th, we have our annual hayride. Now, we have that annual hayride in October on purpose. One, fall hayrides are cool anyway. But we want to have some kind of an event that this person who's new to church Hopefully they've come to the Lord, but if not, they're going to come to the Lord, we hope, that they can meet us in a setting outside of the church. So we always schedule something about a month out like that that people can come to if they so, if they so choose. Likewise, baptisms. Uh, we schedule our baptisms. Our next baptism is November the 17th. November the 17th. So two months after we start this series, then 
about a month into it, people are going to hear me announcing, hey, our next baptism is November 17th. And some of those people who may not even know Jesus yet, but they're going to go, oh, baptism, well, you know what, that's important. I mean, lots of people think it's a religious thing that's important. And it is, but they don't know why. And so we said we've got a one-page application for you to fill out to be baptized. And on that, they need to tell us who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, give us their testimony about how they came to Christ, but maybe they haven't. But it's a great opportunity because they turn it in, and then I get to meet with them. And I say, let's talk about this now. Let's talk about what you've said here. Let's talk about what the gospel is. Let's talk about if you've ever come to, ever come to Christ. Many of the people in our church have come to Jesus through what I'm talking about. And so we've intentionally set up our schedule uh, around that. If you look at the middle of page 8, I say we work within what I call the church year. So we have a series in the fall because that's not just back to school time, it's back to church time. January, new beginning, hey, I'm going to lose some weight, maybe I should find a church. <laughs> and then spring begins right after Easter. And then you see number four there, the summer is useless. Kind of for ministry purposes, we just don't do, I mean, we do stuff, but we don't do a lot of outreach stuff. We have vacation Bible school for the kids, but we don't do a Discovering God series because vacations and all that other stuff. So we do three of those a year, one in the fall, one in January, one right after Easter, okay? All right, we seek to be an intentional church. Next week, we seek to be a healthy church. Any questions? All right, either... I explained that beautifully. Or you guys don't care about anything I just said. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good week. We'll see you next week. Okay.